HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Bob Valgenti. This series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Gastronomica's fall 2022 issue, now available online, explores the themes of transformation, adaptation, and preservation. Join us as we talk with authors. Today, we'll be talking about an essay from our most recent issue of Gastronomica entitled The War in Ukraine and Food Security in Eastern Europe, an essay that focuses on food security issues in Eastern Europe in the context of the war in Ukraine, a paper that arose from a panel discussion called Feeding Resistance and Refugees in Ukraine, the Humanitarian Crisis in Eastern Europe. Our guests are Diana Mincita, and Fabio Parasecoli. Deanna Mincita is an associate professor of sociology at the City University of New York City Tech. Her research focuses on environmental dimensions of food systems, gender and labor in agriculture, and food sovereignty both in and outside of Eastern Europe. Fabio Parasecoli is a professor of food studies in the Nutrition and Food Studies Department at New York University researching food cultural politics, media, and design. His most recent book is Gastronativism, Food, Identity, Politics, from Columbia University Press, published this year. Thank you both for joining us, and welcome. Thank you for inviting us. Wonderful to be here. Great. So why don't we begin, perhaps you can frame for us uh, the article uh, or the essay or really it was a, a kind of record of a panel discussion uh, that was published in Gastronomica. I will jump in and, um, and explain this piece to be written in the context of the first uh, two, three months of what is happening in Eastern Europe in the, as uh, 
the war in Ukraine was raging. For us, the concern was that most of the attention was focused on global markets and the impact on global food economies. And also, or or obviously for, for justifiable reasons, and importantly so, on, on what is happening in agriculture in Ukraine. And the influx of uh, refugees and also the strain on all kinds of provisioning systems that were happening in Eastern Europe were generally overlooked. So our panels was one of the first uh, efforts to to understand the impact and begin thinking uh, conceptually uh, about what issues are there and how are they dealt with and what are the pathways forward to kind of begin imagining what impact and positive possibly uh, outcomes it could bring in, in, in the future in terms of food sovereignty and, and more. And we also wanted to make sure that um, there is attention on that area of, of the world that very often is just described as uh, post-Soviet or, you know, in a way it erases all um, differences in an area that, on the other hand, is very diverse. Uh, not only that, it's very important in terms of population, in terms of economic impact, um, strategically, it's, it's fundamental. And there is a relative lack of interest uh, in that area, both in academia, but also in the press. And so we really wanted to get together and uh, maybe contribute a little bit to fill uh, this gap of of knowledge. So, would you say that that was the you know the, the the primary goal of the panel as you construed it? I mean, obviously, it was you know just a month or two after the the beginning of of the war in Ukraine. So there was you know perhaps the imperative uh, to frame uh, what was going on within the context of, of food studies and, and looking at those local systems. But was there also a goal beyond uh, sort of shedding a light of, on, on the area and, and coming to understand it better? Was there also a desire to perhaps um, talk about uh, maybe the side of war that we often don't think so much about. There was a lot at the beginning of the war that sort of revealed how important logistics were for the military operations. But anyone who works in food studies understands that logistics are always central to how food is moved and, and supplied and provided for populations. So was uh, could you perhaps maybe talk to that side of how uh, coming to understand the complexity of the food systems in this region of the world uh, shed a light on the, the sort of centrality of, of moving food from place to place and, and how many hands are involved. I can make two points uh, and would like to begin by saying, for us, the panel was also a way to start beginning finding the language to talk about the crisis that was unfolding. Uh, just as uh, many of us are uh, have families in the region, and just to see 
all this major transformation, the the war economy unfolding in 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 and touching every aspect of life was was very deeply um, uh, personal uh, to extent. And so in, to pull back to the issue of infrastructures, uh, something that. Um, would have not come across from analysis in from outsiders was how clearly the uh, the intersection between energy and food became so prominent because this region depends on Russian uh, oil and gas and uh, and with the fracturing of relationships and cutting of trade relationships. Um, uh, gas prices shot through the roof and it and that impacted not only the um ability for people to move around and an influx of of refugees etc but but it really uh, had an impact on what will be grown on farms uh it had an impact for the rural communities because they could not afford to travel further even as they wanted to go into cities and sell food for example small scale farmers it became more difficult for them just because it was so expensive uh so this is something that that connection became very very clear that may not be the same in other contexts for example during covid uh the uh, chain, the supply chains broke because of the dependence of these uh, distance distributed suppliers and labor shortages, but not necessarily the energy issue. So so that impact unfolded very specifically there. And right now, uh, we're talking about inflation rates of over 20% in Hungary and the Baltic states. It's it's over 20%, almost 25%. And just the uh, the kind of struggles that, uh, that that pressures that puts on consumers and producers um, are, are really um, uh, making everybody make decisions for really making sure that they have food locally they're not shipping to to the global markets in general. So this interconnection between and tension between local supplies versus commodity production also became much more pronounced. And as uh, Diana was saying, this crisis happened right after, you know, in those countries, the economies were sort of coming back after the, the COVID crisis. So there is an element of compounded crisis in a way that I think it's also very important. Uh, inflation, as Diana was saying, but also just the the infrastructures. You know, during COVID, there were all these uh, bottlenecks in, in transportation uh, for, for several reasons. I mean, we're still studying what actually happened. But now, now the war has made that uh, even worse, worse. So transporting food, uh, not only because of the uh, oil prices, but also because transportations are being uh, put to the test uh, by by the war. That, that is becoming a serious issue. The fact that Ukraine cannot export um, its grains, yes, it is a very, very relevant global issue, but it's also a, a local issue. So, for instance, now they are trying to figure out how to transport uh, we by by land through uh, Moldova and above all through Poland, but that means rethinking the, um, the the train connections because you know they have different rails and the logistics are huge 
and they have to be taken care of while you know millions of refugees are also moving into other countries, especially um, Poland, but also Hungary and, and Moldova. Yeah, that's been one of the sort of powerful narratives, uh, you know, at least for, I think, your, your everyday uh, listener to news reports is at the commodity level, at the global level, we understand, uh, you know, and, and most often in the United States, it gets framed as, you know, a global commodity crisis centered on grain production and, and the ramifications that that has down the line for prices, uh, you know, throughout all the all the different markets. Um, but what that doesn't reveal to us is, are the ripple effects on a much more local level about the ethnic, you know, the, the idea of, of how individual farmers are making decisions about what they can and should grow, and then how they're going to meet the demands of just of feeding all the time. And this is one of the themes I think that came out in the in the panel discussion. So I was wondering if you can maybe say a little bit more about this, because it doesn't just stay within uh, the realm of these of these food systems, although that's central, and that is how we tend to think about these issues and how governments tend to address them. There was attention in the in the in your discussion about how we typically move from a kind of top down approach uh, when we address these issues, but what that really seems to ignore are the 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 local knowledge bases that are there that would inform a much more uh, thoughtful and perhaps um, nimble response that moves from the bottom up. So could you maybe talk about that dynamic a little bit? I really like, like the term nimble and <laughs> and flexible and horizontal uh, because it really captures the kind of response that came uh, to, to, to what is happening in, uh, in, in with this change. Um, in our piece, we documented, uh, especially in Poland, the uh, uh, how the local communities became the really the the front lines for addressing the refugee crisis, and uh, and it depended on mutual aid and solidarity networks and horizontal networks that the governments. Uh, did not really have um, access to support and and not only the governments but also global aid organizations they are funneling their support mostly to local NGOs and they know how to support food banks but they don't know how to support uh, the the really self-organized community neighborhood groups that were really uh, key for enabling the uh, to be able to absorb that many um, refugees and um, and this brings uh, to the to a larger issue of of how uh, responses to crises and even social mobilizations within Eastern Europe are are slightly different from uh, Western world in which uh, there are kind of institutions and NGOs play a bigger role here. Uh, the the kind of semi-formal or informal horizontal relationships, skin-based, friendships, stress-based, are are the primary ways in which these aid uh, uh, materials are flowing, both in and outside of Ukraine as well. Uh, Within the food 
context, we really need to understand how important the smallholder agriculture is and the kinds of its connection to providing the food security in the immediate environment because of uh, the historical connections and informal, again, non-formal markets where smallholder farmers are able to deliver and provide food with, to to to. to neighborhoods in the cities. And that's the kind of food sovereignty that we would like to see more. And yet the governments have not been doing enough, responsive enough, and or learning from the Western models of that focus on industrialized agriculture as a source of food security that have not been able to, to build uh, and respond to this ground up um, efforts. Is there... Is there a change, uh, however, you know, at the, you know, the outset of this discussion, um, you know, it was the beginning of the war heading into spring uh, and in a temperate zone like like Eastern Europe, uh, you're heading into the primary growing season for a variety of crops. So does does that nimbleness, does that that ability to work solely at the local level or to center it upon the local level, does that get more challenged, uh, obviously, now as we're, we're heading into winter? And is there does that create a greater need for maybe a, a sort of hybrid between the local and obviously the, the more national or international, because there, you know, there's just a limit on what can be sourced at this time? I would say yes, there is a big change because that the season... Um, in, in many areas, doesn't allow for much uh, for much growth, and we also have to keep in mind that because of the emergency during the spring of the summer, a the amount of food produced has been reduced, and b much of it had to be used for refugees uh, within uh, Ukraine itself, because you have all the movement from the east towards the west, but also in the uh, in the neighboring country. Um, the governments are slowly trying to figure out what to do, but I think for many countries, especially those that are part of the EU, there is this tension between uh, the, the common agricultural policy, the CAP, uh, that it's structured in a way that really favors larger farms or industrial holding with the system of the single payment what's called of the sing, called the single payment basically also under the influence you know of neoliberal policies washington consensus wto we could talk for hours about that there has been a, a tendency of decoupling subsidies from production and from amount uh, produced and there is the concept of uh somehow paying the farmers for the different services they provide, which is not just food production, it's also um, environment uh, stewardship, it's uh, their cultural significance and whatnot. But it's still structured in a way that it's difficult from smallholders to get hold of these funds. For various reasons, logistics, administration, culture, uh, lack of support from local authorities and national authorities. So uh, I think at least this is my impression, although the government in those countries 
are really trying to, to do something. At the same time, they have to deal with this larger structure and many of the agricultural funds now come into those countries through the EU. Of course, this doesn't work for Moldova and the Ukraine, which are not part of the EU, but probably in this case, the EU should also think of ways to ex expand support also to those countries that are really directly uh, affected and what happens in those countries also affect what happens in Eastern European EU members. Uh, I would like to add to, to Fabio's point about that change is that has been a sea change in pers uh, how the public views small-scale farmers. Very often, uh, in, especially in capital cities, these rural areas, provinces were seen as backwards and they are not kind of meeting the EU safety regulations and there are people who were outrage very critical and saying this is just needs to go, we need to become more modern, more European. But that has really transformed into this outpouring of support for, for smallholder farmers as a form of sovereignty. In Ukraine, in fact, um, uh, farmers are called war heroes because of how important their work is to supply, to support everybody, including sending uh, food uh, into the front. So so I think this, this enormous change is... Um, is very welcome. Um, at the same time, uh, there is a significant intensification of uh, smallholder production because people, those who have land in the cities are trying to work it as much as they can to, to provide food for themselves because there is also this kind of more perception almost the kind of level of victory gardening in uh, during World War II to kind of mobilize around uh, this uh, procurement, not only for yourself, but also for uh, for the Ukrainian cause, for also for saving energy, which is also about energy sovereignty and security, independence from Russia. So there are all these kinds of ways in which this smallholder farmers who are kind of working for themselves and urbanized who are positioning for themselves are also contributing to this larger uh, cause uh, in general. Great. So why don't we take this uh, this sort of uh, rethinking of the role of the small farmer as, as a moment for pause and uh, we'll take a short break and then we can come back after that and talk about what this holds for the future. This episode is supported by HRN business member, Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX. Chemists in the Kitchen is a YouTube video series by LabX, spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through topics like making your own pickles, the chemistry behind ceviche, and much, much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your own kitchen. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Subscribe on YouTube to watch the entire series for free. Chemist in the Kitchen by LabX is a program of the National Academy of Sciences and supports HRN's creative educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Bob Valgenti, talking with a team of authors from our most recent issue about the war in Ukraine and food security in Eastern Europe. 
So why don't we pick up where we left off? It seems that uh, at least uh, in the perception of, of the populations in Eastern Europe uh, and perhaps even beyond, a, a, a change in the way that we're thinking about local farms and the role that they play, uh, as you described, that this, this, uh, this way of thinking about the horizontal connections at the local level and how those have become really central to responding to what's been going on in the war. Of course, as we know, in recent weeks, uh, things have certainly intensified in Ukraine, and it seems like the focus of the Russian military operations have turned to infrastructure and to all the various means that that allow people to live, particularly as it will be uh, winter and things will become more, more difficult for the population in Ukraine. So could you perhaps uh, talk a little bit about, uh, and this might be somewhat, uh, obviously a little bit speculative about, but, you know, kind of drawing on your knowledge of food systems, how is it that those smaller systems uh, will perhaps uh, allow for maybe a, a greater resiliency in the face of, of some of those challenges, if they will? Uh, what will be, you know, obviously some of the benefits, but maybe some of the challenges that are there? What Fabio really well put earlier out is the the challenge is um, uh, the entire political setup of uh, the EU uh, in the EU context but also outside of the EU of the support systems that focus on commodity production and um, and in that world where all the funding and capital and in terms of in form of uh, subsidies, but also in form of loans, are made possible only for the farms that are able to uh, produce commodities on the large scale. And for, for so far, there have not been enough uh, ways to integrate the smallholder farmers into, into these projects. And as a small farmer, for example, to be part to apply for the EU grant, you have to have somebody, prof a professional writing the grant, and you have to hire very often an accountant. So, I mean, it's just outside of the reach of, of any kind of possible possibilities to do that. Um, uh, so hopefully that these efforts that in the Baltic states have materialized into creating and supporting more direct sales have helped to uh, to establish these farmers markets that are not operating only in this kind of farmers market spaces, but near the larger supermarkets, integrating the large international, regional um, supply chains with uh, legitimizing and providing space for the smaller producers to participate. And that has been really heartening to see the um, uh, the ways in which uh, smaller farmers are now uh, can be found to, at the entrances on supermarkets, not as illegal sellers, but as uh, local uh, representatives of the local uh, food economy. And even supermarkets started integrated, uh, integrating and creating spa special spaces within supermarkets for local farmers' production that uh, are similar to the trends happening in Western Europe, but uh, but are even more uh, uh, interesting because that uh, that has these 
large supermarkets connecting to the smallest of the producers in ways that were not possible before. So that's a challenge, but also possibly one of the ways to, to, to develop this even further. And I'm curious how it happens in Poland that has a very strong uh, sector in, in, in small-scale production as well. Yes, yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, Poland was never totally collectivized. Uh, only the, the, the territories that were, were added to Poland after World War II at the border with uh, Germany saw collectivization because those territories were emptied of the German population and they brought in population from the east that were moving from the territories that, on the other hand, ended up in Ukraine and Belarus, let's see, 45, 46, the 50s were saw these huge um, changes. But overall, the, the Polish uh, socialist government never pushed too hard uh, towards collectivization, which in a way um, maintained the structures that they are, but it's also maintained the, the fear of the farmer, as Diana was saying, as backward and outside of modernity, so what's happened in the past 10 to 15 years, it's at least in Poland, uh, there is uh, a lot of attention for farmers markets. But you see two kinds of farmers markets in a way. The farmers markets as the ones we see here, for instance, in New York, where the farmers have a certain mentality, they can speak to urbanites in a certain way, and then you have the markets that have been there since, I don't know, 40, 50 years, where uh, these farmers coming from the countryside very often do not have that language and maybe do not market their food as organic or artisanal, while it actually is. Uh, very often they go into organic, especially recently with, um, with the crisis of uh, the price of fertilizers just because it's by default cheaper. Um, and they produce all sorts of, um, I don't know, um, artisanal products from breads to jams to, um, to honey, uh, to fermented uh, vegetables that are, they don't have sort of the cachet of the fancy farmer's market, but they are so important, especially because they are cheaper. Uh, than the, the, the sort of the organic vegetables that you find at the fancy farmer's market. So the experience you have in those different markets, at least in Poland, it's quite, uh, it's quite interesting. But as Diana was saying, now these old school far, uh, farmer's market and these farmers coming in are seen in a, uh, in a different light. Also, I wanted to point uh, to the demographic changes that the war has caused. At least in Poland, many of the agricultural labor was from Ukraine uh, because the Poles tended to go maybe to Germany where in, in the fields they would uh, get uh, higher wages. And so the agricultural in Poland uh, became sort of the territory of the, the Ukrainians. But now all the, the men are called back into Ukraine for the war. And so only the women are left. And very often they find more employment in cities um, 
in the food uh, business, I must say, it's quite uh, quite frequent to see cooks, uh, producers, uh, waiters that come from from the Ukraine, but there is a lack of labor in 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 the country because the men have have left or are going back to to fight. Uh, at least in the streets of Warsaw, I was in Warsaw in Poland uh, the whole month of October. There is this change. You see many more Ukrainian women than Ukrainian men than before. And I think that is going to have an impact on agriculture. And it's something of the ways in which we have to think about the future. What does it mean to provide support to this population? What does it mean to provide support to an agriculture that might be uh, lacking labor? It's important to understand what Fabio just saying, how different each country is uh, situated and fares differently. Uh, in the Baltic states, in fact, uh, a lot of refugees are uh, focusing on urban areas just because that's where the uh, job opportunities are and where people speak more Russian than in the rural areas. And um, and that, uh, but there has not been the presence of, of uh, uh, Ukrainian workers in the countryside. So there is no lack of this kind of labor. In fact, after COVID, a lot of people came back to the country and moved back to the rural areas. So there is this repopulation of the rural areas that is um, that has happened that is very well Welcome. And um, so, so there is very specific changes in, in all of our context and, and they are requiring very specific country-based solutions and, and pathways forward uh, uh, that, that we will see increasingly in some ways diverging these countries, different pathways, uh, it seems. You know, to sort of pick up on, on that diversity, but also maybe go back to something that Fabio had mentioned uh, uh, a bit ago, and also because it's part of, of his exp expertise in, in, in media studies. I'm wondering on the role of social media in the kinds of conversations and connections and um, you know, you know, the ability of these systems to be resilient and to find other pathways. So for, for, you know, maybe another way of putting it is how does social media become, a, you know, a, a sort of pathway for mutual aid and how does that circumvent maybe some of the slower moving and larger systems that have problems getting down to the local level? Oh, definitely. At least in Poland, Facebook has played a, a very important role more than other social media. I would say uh, there are tons of pages uh, that are both about getting food from the countryside. Also, keeping in mind that many families that have small holds, uh, small farms in the countryside, have members in the cities that also sometimes work in the farm, sometimes work in the city. We have to keep in mind uh, this, but definitely lots of pages that allow for farmers and city dwellers to, to connect. Um, I wouldn't say that maybe Twitter or Instagram have been that relevant. They work differently, um, but I, I think that's been uh, quite important. I haven't seen much attention, I must say, on media like newspapers and TV on, on these issues. 
even even locally, let alone from here. I mean, at like for many journalists in the West, you know, it, it's sort of an undefined space. But also internally, I don't think the sort of more structured media have been paying enough attention to what's happening in the countryside. Uh, in the Baltic states too, there is a, uh, Facebook has been the primary platform for coordinating all these horizontal uh, networks and and connecting people. And uh, for the reasons that uh, uh, just because it's uh, it's been adopted more widely and used more widely in slightly older populations in rural populations as well. So. Um, and the saturation of uh, mobile devices with smartphones is is pretty high, so that that really has been uh, uh, central for 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 these efforts in in general. Um, so it's I think it raises some very interesting, important questions about how to balance this um, functions of of social media such as Facebook uh, that enables these collaborations along with the spread of um, of misinformation that they also <laughs> enable. And uh, luckily, so far we have not seen uh, the uh, a lot of kind of embrace of of some of the uh, propaganda coming from Russia on social media uh, that there is just a very clear sense in which the uh, perpetrator is Russia and and what comes with that in in the countries that that have border with Russia uh, but uh, we have seen uh, uh, support dwindling for example in the Czech Republic there were some obviously in like Serbia and and other parts of Yugoslavia. It's just like it has been this kind of, again, divergence of paths of support and uh, or um, mobilization. Uh, and, and the media plays an important role in this, in social media in particular, without, you know, if it doesn't really filter the propaganda, then it's a huge issue. <laughs> Well, I, th- I think as we're as we're we're getting towards the end of our uh, of our time, I wanted to uh, maybe ask what what might be a little bit of a challenging question uh, based on the fact that uh, the essay itself was really prescient about uh, sort of what would what would be central to the ongoing uh, conflict moving forward. But I'm wondering if if both of you could comment a little bit on perhaps what since the time you know, that, that disappeared in gastronomica, what has changed or what have been some of maybe the, the sort of unexpected outcomes uh, or consequences that you think might be, uh, you know, the challenges ahead as we think about these food systems through the winter and beyond, you know, understanding that, uh, the course of the conflict in Ukraine is, is something that, uh, uh, hopefully will get better, but we certainly can't predict. I can start by, um, by saying that there is a better understanding of scale of the problem right now, just because at the beginning it was just so overwhelming that it was hard to to see beyond the survival of it just a few months. And the questions were, will entire Ukraine will fall to Russia and what, what will happen? So it's become... Uh, 
the 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 time scale that uh, the that is already kind of longer we are looking into the longer term and i think a lot of uh especially in the baltic states smaller countries the question is how they will be able to participate in global systems not to just provide for local populations and support these local food sovereignty but how will they continue to be able uh to buy what they need, right? We are living in the world where we cannot produce all the technology and and if we have drought or floods that have happened as well, uh, that how, how, how will they um, be able to find their economic niches and, 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 and uh, compete in this um, neoliberalized uh, economy that... Um, that puts a lot of pressure and competition. So I think that's this uh, uh, looking with all of the mobilization and solidarity that is happening is the question of of, of the future uh, economic prosperity and or even survival in that sense. Um, when it comes to Poland, I think that there are a few interesting things happening there. On the one hand, Poland has become crucial strategically just from the military point of view. And also the government is thinking about the war, especially in terms of military strategies, not so much about long-term uh, food production or the topics, the, the issues that Diana was pointing to. Um, at the same time though, uh, the, the basis for the governing uh, party in Poland is in the countryside. So what is going to happen in the next few months? Will the government actually move ahead and support not only large farms, but also small, uh, small holders, small holding farmers that are their political basis? Uh, elections are coming up soon. And I think that will have quite an impact, also because the opposition so far hasn't been able to talk to the countryside. It is mostly um, an urban and Western uh, Poland uh, force. So I think that will have an impact in the, in the next month and as the elections come closer. Yeah, there's a way in which it all goes back to the, the, the sort of relation between the, the city and the countryside that, that Adam Smith was had, had had spoken about maybe uh, with with that thought in mind you know maybe just very briefly either of you could could comment is there is there is there hope that coming out of these these changes and this tumult that maybe there won't be not just more respect but also we'll understand a little bit better how to integrate those smaller and local systems uh, into uh, global food economies uh, to, to, to begin to uh, see them as not only more central, uh, but uh, perhaps even uh, more powerful within the way that we think about how food is moved. I am very much hopeful. I think this is the historical moment in which we recognize how these uh, resilient, multifunctional, biodiverse farms are um, at the center of, of uh, the really incredibly changing economies and, uh, and they are gaining more 
uh, visibility, if not political power, but at least visibility in the public debates and and policy, hopefully, uh, decisions. Then, I mean, the help is there uh, also because it's a necessity. And as the, the winter months will go on and the work continues, it's the revaluation of this form of uh, local food sovereignty, biodiversity, the role of small farmers needs to be taken into account. It needs to. So we'll see how also the government and the institutions are nimble in realizing and figuring out how to deal with it. Well, I think we can end on on you know what would be a hopeful note there that things you know, that things can change and that we can learn from this. So I want to thank you both uh, for joining us today. Listeners can read the full piece in Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. More for more details, visit gastronomica.org. Join us again next week for our final episode of the year, and subscribe to to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes into 2023. Thank you. The Gastronomica podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.